How do you like it, Kansas City? Give me a little bit of that uh, Ben Stiller Zoolander blue steel. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, Kansas City. My name is Duncan Kaminsky, and I am happy to bring you a Friday edition of Tapped In on the Kansas City Public Network from Tapson, Maine, in downtown Kansas City, 17th and Maine, best wings in the city. Thank you very much for joining me on this edition. We are live, live stream. That's the thing we're doing now, baby. We are doing it live. I'm, you are looking at me face to face. This is live. This is real, real emotion. If I screw up, if I drop an F-bomb or something, that's on me. You just have to deal with it. Grandma and Grandpa, I'm really sorry if you see it. So, anywho, diving right in. Royals, I'm, I've got the, I'm, I'm representing today. It was a very historic week for the Kansas City Royals, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, our Royals are 30 and 30 and 31. Uh, it's about the just right around the third, third of the way through the season mark. And, man, just we, we just can't keep things going. The Royals just cannot maintain success. They cannot, when they get hot, they just can't keep cruising with it. Inevitably, they run into some, just something stupid happens, and it costs the Royals. The Royals... We were talking last Friday, the Royals were sitting at 29 and 26, three games over 500. Oh my gosh, the Royals were playing great baseball. Things looked great. Things were exciting. And then the Royals went on a losing streak. They lost on Saturday, five to four. They lost on Sunday, two to one to the Twins. Back to back, one run losses to the Twins. Man, that hurt, especially after they went, they went and put up 40, I'm sorry, 14 runs, 40. 40-something runs. No, 14 runs. Beat the Twins on Friday night, 14-5. to five. Absolutely just lambasted those, those weak-ass Twinkies. See, I already, I already curse now. Just, man, that's live TV for you, folks. That's live streaming. That's what happens. Uh, but then, yeah, they dropped the last two games to the Twins, both by one run. And then they ran into the streaking red-hot Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. That is still their full name. I can't believe they did it whenever they changed that name a decade ago, and we're still here. The California teams are just weird, folks, but I'll get to that in a minute too. Uh, but, yeah, lost on Monday night to the Angels, 8-3, to three, and it was the debut of Royal, one of the top Royals prospects, uh, pitcher Jackson Kowar, who was the second of the two first-round picks, uh, or I believe three first-round picks, by the Royals in 2018 when they took the five – uh, the five college pitchers all in their first five picks, all I believe in the top 60 or top 65 uh, is where all five of these pitchers went. Obviously, we've seen uh, Brady Singer have bad, you know, have some ups and downs, have some successes and have some, unfortunately some really bad starts. But he debuted last year. We saw Chris Bubich debut last year and is still in the rotation as well. And then we saw Daniel Lynch, unfortunately, get roughed up this year and Classmate Jackson Kowar followed suits with uh, with Daniel Lynch in getting absolutely roughed up in his first career start. Folks, he didn't even make it out of the first inning. He gave up four runs in two and a thirds inning, and it was only he's only the second pitcher in baseball history to give up, or I'm sorry, in in the recent baseball history uh, to give up four runs in less than a less than an inning in their debut. And that's yeah, just uh, that was unfortunate. And he was he was red hot in AAA up in Omaha, five and zero with a .85 ERA, forty one strikeouts and thirty one and two thirds innings at uh, with Omaha. And he only was able to face seven batters this past Monday, 
and he had three wild pitches in addition to the two walks and three hits that he gave up. And you could see Salvi had never caught him before. Salvi was having a rough time with it, and it just it just was not 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 ideal. Is not even fair to say it was far from ideal. It was just not what you want to see, and it really it kind of sucks that the two maybe the two best prospects out of this draft class in Lynch and Kowar have both been roughed up pretty brutally in their first starts, but we'll see. I mean, there's still a lot of talent with them and obviously singer and uh, Bubich are both in the rotation. We'll see if Kowar will get another chance uh, here pretty quick. And Daniel Lynch has been sent back down. And unfortunately the fifth of that group, Jonathan Bolin recently had to have Tommy John surgery and so Bolin was the one. He was, the again, the fifth out of those five pitchers t- taken, the last one. But he's also thrown a perfect game in the no, in the minors. And so he's one of the ones that – he's a bigger dude, 6'6", 240. But uh, and he's looks like maybe the back of the back of the bullpen kind of guy. But uh, Tommy John surgery. So just kind of a rough go for some of these pitchers from that 2018 class. So hopefully hopefully things will look up for them from there. But that was that led to an 8-3 to three loss to the Angels on Monday night. And we lost eight to one on Tuesday night, and then we lost six to one on Wednesday night to take our losing streak to five straight. So after being twenty nine and twenty six, all of a sudden the Royals were twenty nine and thirty one, and that's yeah, that just sucks. <laughs> like it's as soon as as soon as something good is going, it just seems like the Royals can't keep up with it, and that's we're still a game under five hundred, so it's really not the end of the world. And again, the Angels are one of the hottest teams in baseball. Uh, and that's even without Mike Trout in the lineup as he is out indefinitely. But Shohei Otani, holy crap, folks. Got to talk about that guy. The things he is doing, he's carrying that Angels team. I mean, on Wednesday night, they got a great start out of Griffin Canning, probably the best start of his career, according to his manager, Joe Madden. Uh, but the things that Otani are doing, on Tuesday night, he hit the longest home run of his career, a 470-foot shot over the outfield fence, just absolutely crushed the ball. But that wasn't even the hardest hit ball he had that game. He had a double two innings later in the third inning that had a higher exit velocity than the 470-foot home run did. 112.6 mile per hour off the bat compared to 111.7 miles per hour off the bat. This dude is doing just... <laughs> it's He's doing things that nobody has seen in a century. You've not seen a player that can go and have dominance on the mound and dominance at the plate like him literally since Babe Ruth. Like, that's that's it. That is the other name. That is the most recent name you can come up with to compare to what Shohei Otani is doing right now. And you're talking about a guy who just came off of Tommy John a little over a year ago as well and is still pitching the way that he is. It's, it's, the guy is a freak. And the fact that they've won, the Angels have won, what, 10, 11 out of 14 or something like that, even without Mike Trout in the lineup, that's it. Man, they really nailed it with going after Shohei Otani. And he is a lot of fun to watch. And anyway, that Tuesday night game, he his was one of five home runs that they hit, four of them allowed by the uh, aforementioned Chris Bubich. Most home runs that he's given up in a, in a game this season. Uh, and then you get into Wednesday night, Brad Keller had been trending upwards. Brad Keller had actually done very well over the month of May. One of the few things, and one of the few Royals that actually did well in the month of May. Uh, but he struggled, unfortunately. It was his first start, first time, first loss in seven starts. And he had not allowed over three runs since uh, 420. Since, you know, that day, 420. 
No, get get out, get out of here, you 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 potheads and everything like that. No, I'm just kidding. 420. We all know what that's about. It was also a big announcement day for KCPN. So anyway, um, but the Royals took that loss, so ran the losing streak up to five games. This also coincides with a certain ball player that was missing from the lineup. The a one Adalberto Mondesi, who once again. I think I talked about it last Friday. So exciting. Man, missed the first two months, and here he comes just looking great. We're excited. We're pumped up. And then Mondesi just proceeds to abs- just, oh, oh, he's going to hurt. He's going to get hurt again. Towards, he injured his oblique in the last spring training game, missed those two months. And then and it was, it was the Memorial Day game that Ponch and I were at when we saw just this amazing play that he made. Just covered so much ground so quickly. Something that very few players in baseball can do. Freak athlete. Got nailed the guy at first base. Oh, no. He's limping. He came up lame. And now he's on the injured list. He did take batting practice uh, the last two days. But still, just <sighs> availability is as important as any other attribute for for, a ba- for any athlete to have. And that's definitely been the big problem for Adalberto Mondesi over the course of his career. Uh, but speaking of exciting prospects for the for the Royals was Bobby Witt Jr. In addition to you know that's we're talking the future here. Uh, Bobby Witt Jr. was also in the Royals news this week because he hit a home run. He's been crushing it. He's been crushing it at Double A Northwest Arkansas. And there's a obviously there is a movement of people wondering if maybe he should already be playing shortstop, especially with Mondesi's injury issues right now, and maybe they could move him over to third base with Hunter Dozier and Hanser Alberto just not seeming like the answer, albeit Dozier has been upticking a little bit of late, uh, this week in particular. But he's still batting under 200, still batting underneath the Mendoza line. So not pretty by any means on Hunter Dozier's part. But uh, Bobby Wood Jr. anyway, uh, yeah, he hit a home run and monster shot. And so well over the fence, not not a, a no-doubter. And he kind of did a skip across home plate, kind of the sidestep, just the, the little skip as he came across home plate. And the home plate umpire was sitting there watching the whole thing, standing right in front of the plate, watched Witt go by, bent over, dusted off home plate. And then you come around to the next batter, Nick Prado comes up to bat, and the umpire points to the pitcher. The pitcher throws it to the catcher as if he would for an intentional walk, and the catcher catches it, foot on home plate, umpire signals out and somehow that meant that Bobby Witt Jr.'s home run wasn't a home run according to the umpire Bobby Witt Jr. never touched home plate uh seemingly this news was not given to the Royals but only to it was the Frisco Rough Riders uh and the Rough Riders were able to tag him out and so in the official scorecard it is a triple uh, for Bobby Witt Jr. And that's that's it. Uh, and he was he was out at home plate. I do not understand how that works. I we've seen the replays, and we've even seen stills of his foot clearly stepping on home plate. I don't know if this umpire has an agenda against the uh, the Naturals or Bobby Witt Jr. I don't know if he thought that Bobby Witt Jr. was showboating too much. I have gone on at length at length about officiating on this show on the tailgate podcast with Aaron and Ty I don't know how much more I can say about officiating but holy just goodness gracious 
trying to temper myself here. I ju- it's the egos on some of these damn umpires. I mean, I just I literally don't understand. You had ran, you had so many people have come out on social media talking about it's like what in the hell and and calling it the worst call ever. And there have been others that have said, well, I mean, you don't see for one hundred percent certainty that he touched the bag. Then why the hell did the umpire bend over and sweep off the plate? What is the purpose of doing that if there's no dirt on the plate because no player actually touched the plate? And again, you're you're gonna let Frisco make this call. You don't even give Bobby Witt Jr. the chance to maybe come back and touch the plate. It's a load of bullshit. Ah, man, there it goes. Now, now I'm really into the curse words. <sighs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, but I just uh, it's one of those things I can't get over, and I feel like it's on a weekly basis that I get into these rants on one of the shows about uh, umpiring, officiating in any kind, and. It's because something happens every damn week that, that, in, that just gets me enraged and pissed off like this. This isn't even a bone to pick segment. I did that weeks ago. This is just some, some just bullshit on, it's, it's getting tiring. And we've still got the NBA playoffs with another like two rounds and the finals to go. Something inevitably, this is not the last time I'm going to have to go ranting on about, about officiating. So Bobby Witt Jr., the home run that never was, it was a triple, and it's a load of garbage if you ask this, uh, this certain Royals fan. And so we'll finish off here with the Royals. Uh, they did get a win in Oakland yesterday, and that's when I said the California teams are weird. It was Kansas City at Oakland, something I can't say when in regards to the NFL anymore. It makes me kind of sad. It's Chiefs at Raiders in Las Vegas now, and I just – I can't really get behind that. Um, not not that I'm in support of Oakland or anything, but I uh, don't think anybody's really in support of Oakland. If you've seen the highlights from that game last night, there wasn't a lot of fans there, and I believe that the A's have opened up to a certain capacity. If I'm wrong, I apologize. But even if it was full capacity, who the hell wants to go to that stadium? That Oakland fans aren't going to – like, the Oakland fans apparently don't give a shit. And you see, they've lost the Warriors in basketball. Yes, it was the Golden State Warriors, but they moved across the bay. They were they played in Oakland. They even wore Oakland jerseys in one of their play-in games. Sorry, Aaron, I know it's play-in. Technically, it was not the playoffs. My bad. Um, but they wore Oakland jerseys, even though their arena is now in San Francisco. They've moved across the bay. Oakland lost them. Oakland lost the Raiders on to Las Vegas. Again, I don't like it, but that's just the traditionalist in me. And now there's already talk that Major League Baseball is allowing the A's to go uh, look for another another site. There's even talk that Las Vegas is the front runner to possibly get the A's. Can you imagine that, Oakland fans? You're gonna are you really gonna lose your basketball franchise to the hated rival across the bay in San Francisco, and then both your football and baseball to Las Vegas? Should be a little more supportive. Maybe go out there and vote whenever these these. Uh, motions come out to try and raise funds to build a new stadium that coliseum is a dumpster fire and it has been for decades absolute trash and the the fact that we are that the raiders had to spend their last season in oakland still playing on dirt for certain games during baseball season is ridiculous it was 20 let's it was 2019 that they were still doing that all these advances in technology, all these advances in the world, all these advances in sports, and you're still playing on an infield. Uh, it just, Oakland just, uh, just screw them. Screw them anyway. 
I can't I can't stand them anyway. They're all Raiders fans, so I don't feel that bad. And I also don't feel bad about the fact that the Royals went in there and ended their five-game losing streak last night with a superb start by Mike Miner. Seven innings pitched, three hits allowed, only one walk, eight strikeouts, one earned run, and he was in a pitcher's duel with A's pitcher Frankie Montas until into the seventh inning, and it was in the seventh inning that Hunter Dozier had a game-tying double, followed immediately by Kelvin Gutierrez with a go-ahead two-run single, Soler, an inning later, had a two-run home run. And then Andrew Benintendi had a solo shot, and that resulted in a 6-1 to one victory for the Kansas City Royals to halt that five-game losing streak. Thank goodness it didn't reach double digits like we saw with the 11-game earlier this year. And so the Royals now at, again, this roughly third mark of the season, sit at 30-31. and 31. They have another game with, uh, with the Oakland A's this evening at 8-40. Got to love those Western Coast games, or West Coast games. Uh, Brady Singer against Cole Irvin tonight. And so go and uh, let's let's see if the Royals can get back up there to 500. And then maybe over the weekend get over 500 just to probably lose it again. But no, we're going to stay optimistic. We're going to stay optimistic. And you know why we're going to stay optimistic? Because even with all the struggles, we are in a bountiful, glorious era of Royals baseball. No, it's not like the 70s and 80s when the George Brett, Frank White years, and you had superb rotations with the likes of Dennis Leonard, Paul Splitorf, Brett Saberhagen. It's not that era of greatness, but it is an era of greatness when that, that's, it is an era of success after what had been an extremely dark era. And that is cause to be optimistic. And the reason, the catalyst, and the person that needs to be thanked at the forefront of this late, this latest era of Royals baseball, just celebrated a an anniversary this week, June 8th. This past uh, what is it? Uh, yes, yeah, the 11th. So this past Tuesday, June 8th marked the 15 year anniversary of Dayton Moore becoming the Royals general manager. To say it's a game changer is an understatement. Uh, the Royals were in a historically bad slump leading up to the hiring of Dayton Moore. And Dayton Moore, had he'd grown up. He'd, he'd, he'd been a Royals fan. He'd paid attention to the Royals. And, of course, he came up under former Royals general manager John Schuerholz in the Atlanta Braves system. And he didn't even want to become a general manager. But after having conversations with David Glass, and say what you will about David Glass, I definitely have my opinions on him. May, you know, rest, may, uh, may, he, may he rest in peace. Um, but... It was it it was a bold move by Day, by uh, Dayton Moore to come and take over this Royals job and the Royals again they'd had one one winning season in twelve years and of course this was the years where the ownership was up in the air Miles Prentice tried to buy the team which would have been an absolute disaster David Glass for as much as he infuriated a lot of us he absolutely nailed the Dayton Moore hire before Dayton Moore took over the Royals were coming off back to back to back hundred loss seasons absolute garbage baseball just the worst of the worst something that you hadn't been seen in i i can't re, i can't recall if it had ever uh, i don't have the the numbers in front of me i don't know if it never happened before but if it had not very often that a team had three straight hundred loss seasons and it wasn't just like bad baseball and it wasn't just like hundred loss seasons where you're waiting for this talent that's in the minors no the royals minor system minor league system was among the worst in the game too they were just always uh, the laughing stock of trades. I mean, I can tell you about the Jermaine Dye trade 
in which we traded for a, a shortstop. We traded Jermaine Dye for, uh, for a shortstop with the Colorado Rockies, who wasn't even that good of a shortstop to begin with in Navy Perez. That was a joke. The Johnny Damon trade was a joke. The Carlos Beltran, so many trades that the Royals just absolutely ate it and ate it hard. And it was just, it was ownership, not one to spend a lot of money. I mean, there was numerous factors, but it was just a poorly run organization. And, and it showed on the field. Not only was it bad in the minors. I mean, I can remember some of the most boneheaded plays that you've ever seen. I, I can recall a first baseman, Ken Harvey getting hit in the back by a relay throw. I can recall a center fielder and his name escapes me at the moment. And it's probably for the best that I remember him going out for a fly ball, thinking it might be a home run that he, Oh my gosh, I'm going to rob this guy of this home run. And he jumps up and he's on the fence hanging and he turns around and the ball lands 15 feet behind him in the outfield. I mean, just, ah, just terrible baseball. And there was some highlights. I mean, obviously the aforementioned Beltron, Mike Sweeney, Man, absolutely loved the Sween Dog, but it was just some terrible, terrible baseball. And then June 8th, 2006, Dayton Moore came in, and everything changed. I mean, there already were a couple pieces in place. Billy Butler had been drafted in 2004, Zach Greinke in 03, and, uh, or maybe 02. Um, and then Alex Gordon drafted in 2005, who, of course, was the face of what would the the following era of Royals baseball. But... It was Dayton Moore that came in and changed things. Within five years of Dayton Moore taking the job, the Royals had the best farm system in baseball. And not just the best farm system in baseball. In 2011, Baseball America, the, the, who was at the forefront of uh, prospects, at uh, evaluating prospects in baseball and really great analysis of uh, minor league systems. And they graded the Royals farm system in 2011 as the, they were given the highest grade that baseball America had ever given a farm system in their 25 years of existence that it was. And it was just star studded. You're talking Eric Hosmer. You're talking Mike Moustakis, Will Myers, Mike Montgomery. Uh, who was that? John Lamb. Like there was, these were all, they had five top 20 prospects right there. Danny Duffy was a top 100 prospect. I mean, they were, they were littered with, premium blue chip prospects and that doesn't even count for some of the other names like i don't know some guy named salvador perez who went from this this guy who nobody had heard of and rocketed up the system from single a and made his debut along with all these other guys in 2011 and here we are a decade later and salvi's he's putting together a borderline hall of fame career and after george brett is probably the greatest royal that we've ever seen suit up in in the royal blue and so it's all thanks to Dayton Moore and yes I will admit there is a caveat that in his 15 seasons there has only been three winning seasons if you look at 16 17 they were literally like 81 and 81 or 80 and 82 so were they're awfully close to that being five winning seasons but you still and of course, one of them was a twenty was the twenty twenty only sixty game schedule, so that one can maybe have an asterisk to it. Um, but it's still when you look at the fact that two of those winning seasons were resulted in a World Series trip that ended in Game Seven with the man, the tying run on third base, which it was the right call for Alex Gordon to stay on third. I don't care what anybody says; he would have been absolutely smoked at the plate by Brandon Crawford. Um, but and then a World Series title in twenty fifteen. 
And I used to have, there was a regular of mine, Mike, hello, shout out to you if uh, you listen or watch, um, of, of when I used to work at the other place. And he, he was always down on Dayton Moore. And understandably so. He brought up excellent points of why he thought Dayton Moore should be fired. And his thing, his, his argument was always, you take away the World Series years, then Dayton Moore has had a horrible run as general manager. And I would shoot back and say, yeah, you're right, but you can take any executive in the history of the game, and if you add those two seasons, that makes it a pretty damn strong resume. If you add, to any, again, any baseball executive, that what the Royals did in 14 and 15, if you put that on any other resume, that's a strong resume, and that's somebody who would get hired by damn near any other team in baseball, if not all 29 other franchises. And the other point that I told him, and I said, here we are. Yes, the Royals are back in another rebuilding phase. I said, but if Dayton does it again, and we see the Royals have a couple of hundred lost seasons, which of course we did, but if they build back up into another World Series contender, and not just contender, but if we see this team in the next three, four years go back to the World Series, which I think is absolutely in play when you consider the young pitching, when you consider the likes of Bobby Witt Jr., and some of the some of the other talent that they have, and some of the talent that's already there. You still have Salvi around. You still have Whit Merrifield around. Some, some some real strong players. I think it's definitely in play for the Royals to do it again. And if they do, you're not going to be talking about Dayton Moore as the best executive that the Royals have had, or and maybe he's not. You know, you talk John Schuerholtz. You talk, there's there's a number of names, but you would be talking about Dayton Moore as pro baseball Hall of Fame executive taking one of the a laughing stock of the game and turning them into a champion and then doing it again that would be a all-time great executive an all-time great general manager and once again that would put that would most likely put Dade Moore in the Hall of Fame and so while there's been a lot of lows man the highs have been fun i mean just think back to how much fun that month the month of october was in 2014 and then obviously the following season in 15 leading up to the World Series victory. The electricity, the buzz that this city felt anywhere you went, anybody you talked to, everybody was just had the Royals on the mind. It was an energy that we hadn't felt in so long. And yes, we got to feel it again with the Patrick Mahomes-led Chiefs. And we probably will be again very soon. But it was something that the city sorely, badly, badly needed. And the man to thank for it all was Dayton Moore. Dayton Moore made it all possible. And so congratulations to Dayton Moore on a milestone 15-year anniversary of being the Royals general manager. And I certainly hope that we can say he's the GM for a long, for a long time uh, moving forward. Because, again, this guy, he's, a, he's an absolute game changer, and he's got the Royals on the right path. Even with the struggles, even with the losing streaks and struggling to you know get above 500 and you fall back under, they are still very much on the right path. This is an era of optimism and belief. And, and the should have faith in this Royals team because of Dayton Moore. So congratulations to him. I'm going to finish this edition of Tapped In with uh, just one more thing that happened over the last couple of weeks that I don't think has gotten enough press, and that is the continued excellence and just – excellence isn't even, a right, isn't even the right word. It is just far and away superiority to anyone else in her craft, in her, in her sport, and that is Simone Biles. What she is doing in gymnastics, unprecedented. 
I mean, she's 24 years old and she is already, I don't think I even have to say arguably. I think it's, it's an easy to say that she is the greatest gymnast that has ever lived. I mean, and I realize that you, people are going to throw out a Nadia Comanachi and, and um, uh, Shannon Miller and, and there's, there's a number of names that are icons in the sport. And I know I'm forgetting a lot of other names, um, but Mary Lou Retton. I mean, there's, there's a lot of great iconic gymnasts, but what Simone Biles is doing is otherworldly. And she just recently won the U.S. Classic All-Around title. Shocker. I mean, that, that, that's not news. And there's a reason it wasn't talked about very much. But what should have been talked about in it was the move that she performed on the vault to help her win this uh, all-around title. And that was in the vault. She performed a move that had never been attempted by a woman in, com in gymnastics competition ever. Ever. And that is the Yurchenko double pike. It is a move of such insane precision just violent, rapid movement, and then ultimately per perfect grace. You just, you have to absolutely have, you have, there's a number of factors that go into the move, but I've watched the highlight probably five or six times, and it is, it's remarkable just with such ease that she hits this move, and the crowd went crazy for it. I believe it was in Indianapolis crowd went nuts and her coaches her teammates other gymnasts were just in awe at what she had just pulled off and you look at the praise she got across social media across all these platforms all these people were just lavishing praise and justifiably so because again it was something that had never even been attempted in women's gymnastics and she is so damn good she just comes out and is like yeah, I need, like, she needs to challenge herself. And so she goes and does something that has never been done before. Yes, it is named after a Russian gymnast named Natalia Yurchenko, but even she never performed it in competition. And so Biles nailed it. And then when the judges gave her the score for it, they gave her a 6.6, .6, which is pretty much run-of-the-mill for, for what a gymnast would get, like the top-scoring gymnast on vault. It's right around the mid-sixes. And so she performed a move that had not been seen ever in competition before by a woman. And she got just a run-of-the-mill average score, according to the judges. That sparked not, it sparked some outrage, but probably not enough outrage. Because that is something, and I've talked about, and I am in some ways in sports a traditionalist. I love I, you know, I love old school. I love, you know, in football, I love defense and running the ball. And there, there's so many ways say like baseball, I love defense and speed and pitching, but I am not a traditionalist in the fact that I love to see advancement because that's, that's how, that's how sports get better is they grow, they change, they adjust to the times and to new athletes and to better superior athletes. And that is something that this sport, that the judges, at least in this regard, do are seem un, incapable of doing of, of doing so, of catching up and adjusting to the times of this clearly just phenomenal, not even once in a generation, but maybe once in a lifetime athlete in Simone Biles and instead try to bring her back down and say, yeah, it was the best, you know, the best vault we saw of the weekend. So we're going to give it the best, the score that we would usually give the best vault score. Instead of being like, that is an insane historical move. We are never going to see anybody do it again. We've never seen it before. 
she is not just at the top of her game. She is at the top. She has surpassed where, like, the bar was here. She sent the bar up into the atmosphere. It's in the, it's in the effing stratosphere. I almost dropped an F-bomb. And that's what Biles is capable of. And the judges tried to bring her back down. And she even came out and said, in the quote that she said, is they don't want the field to be too far apart. They get mad that people are too far ahead and excelling. And it's true. And it's an unfortunate it's an unfortunate truth of sports, of athletics, is when there are athletes that are just far ahead of the rest of the field, whoever's in charge of that sport, whoever is at the forefront and the decision makers need to find a need to try to bring them back. You look and a lot of it is, it ha it, a lot of it is it's when the black athletes are the ones who are excelling and just so far ahead of everybody else. You think back in the 1960s, when the slam dunk was happening, there was black, there, there was you were starting to see a lot more black basketball players in the NBA. The dunks were happening. Dunks got outlawed. Well, according to them, they said, "Well, the dunks don't take a lot of skill, and this is a game of skill." And given that the skill skill level to be able to do that isn't very high, we're going to outlaw it. And that was when you know the Lou Alcindor, the later Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, was know a top recruit and then going to UCLA and part of the John Wooden's absolutely legendary run at UCLA uh, but he was one of those ones where yeah he's 7-3 and he can easily dunk the ball but because it, it seemed there was no skill to it they tried they outlawed it they tried to make it harder because because they weren't willing to adapt and you look in uh, the two early 2000s when Tiger Woods was absolutely dominating the field in golf and Augusta National, who has their own sordid past in history in their own right um, when it comes to sexism and racism, um, they, uh, they lengthen the course saying we, we need to tiger-proof the course is essentially what they did because Tiger was just kicking everybody's ass. And now we're seeing something similar happen with Simone Biles. And it's a damn shame because they're superior athletes, athletes that just stand out and are so just are performing at a level that is unprecedented, that is unseen. It doesn't deserve to try to bring like we shouldn't be trying to bring them back down to the rest of the field. We should be celebrating them. We should be marveling at their excellence and just realizing that you're seeing something that you're probably never going to see again in the rest of your life and celebrating that that's what deserves it should be celebrated and instead it is it is it's treated like they're antagonists or like like they're oh this isn't fair you know what life isn't fair we all see that on a daily basis but there are there are so few things that are truly marvelous and truly wonderful in life that it should be something that everybody gathers around and just absolutely sits in awe of. And Simone Biles is one of those people in this world that we all should be in awe of. So that's where just the gym, the judges, whoever, whoever else, whoever out there who made those decisions, get, get with the times, be better. Just need you to be better. So anyway, that's going to finish out this edition of uh, tapped in once again, you know, kudos, celebrate our uh, cheers to uh, Dayton Moore and to Simone Biles, and thank you very much for tuning in to this edition, this uh, 6-11, June 11th edition of Tapped In. My name is Duncan Kaminsky from the Kansas City Public Network. Thank you very much, and I will see you all next week.